Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times that uh, with instant analysis of NXT TakeOver stand and deliver. Yes, the two-night very special NXT TakeOver event went down Wednesday and Thursday of WrestleMania week and the Silver King is here as always to break it down right after night two of the show went off the air. We actually do have a little bit of a delay. The Silver King was unable to watch it exactly live. So it's not exactly right after it went over. It's just a not so instant analysis, but hey, we're still getting it for you before you wake up in the morning. Joining me, of course, is vintage Chris Vanini, and we're not going to waste a lot of time off the top. It is very late where I am right now. A couple of reminders. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Don't forget to leave us those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. And also, don't forget to listen to all of our shows this week. We have interviews. The WrestleMania 37 Ultimate Preview is still there waiting for you. We will have a WrestleMania 37 Go Home Show on Friday night and WrestleMania Instant Analysis Sunday right after that goes off the air. So, Chris, we're just going to get into the show. No pleasantries today. Uh, look, two nights, like it was like 10 matches at this point, and it was not really, a, I was going to call it a mixed bag, but it really wasn't. It was a fantastic show. Like I'm just going to straight up say for two nights of professional wrestling, I don't really know how much better you can get than that. But this is what I'll say off the top, a quick way to kind of put a bow on it before we break it down individually. I thought the strongest, best match of both shows was the main event of night two, the Adam Cole versus Kyle O'Reilly unsanctioned match. But to my surprise, I thought night one was the stronger overall show from top to bottom. And I wonder if you agree with that. Yeah, I felt the same. When you when you had asked me, uh, since you didn't watch it live, you said, was it good? I said, yeah, I was going to say not as good as night one, but I didn't want, I didn't want to give you any spoilers whatsoever. But yeah, right. I would agree. I, I mean, night two wasn't bad and it finished strong. It needed that strong finish. But still, I think top to bottom, night one probably surprised us. Yeah, they they definitely overloaded night one. It's almost to the point where they probably could have put the Finn Balor carrying cross match on night one, the women's match on night two, and it, it may have worked out a little bit better. Or maybe it was just the tag team match. Honestly, that MSK tag team match was insane. But look, we're going to break yeah. all that down right now. We're not going to waste a lot of time, as I said. So the way we do these instant analysis, we normally break open a cold one. I don't have one. It's late. It's it's too late for us to drink anyway. So we're going to skip that part. Uh, maybe we'll do that for WrestleMania. Uh, but we always talk about the pre-show poll, what the expectation was going into this show. And I think, Chris, I said, well, actually, no, we didn't have this conversation because I no. did the ultimate preview by myself. Um, my expectation going in was an A, just straight up. You know, you have a takeover of this caliber, a two night show, these matches, this time, kind of card. My expectation was an A and you guys agreed. Everyone who voted in our pre-show poll Wednesday night on Twitter, 78 percent expected an A. That's Insane. I don't, I've never seen a pay-per-view <laughs> where 78% of respondents expect an A, 14% B, 7% C, and no one DRF. And I'll give you a little spoiler. There are, of course, no DRF grades uh, in the post-show poll either. So uh, there was no trolls, nothing like that this time. Everyone basically said, hey, this thing was too good that we can't even like legitimately say it was a DRF in any possible way. So exceedingly high grades. And I think it deserved it going in because it was a really strong card. So, you know, you know, originally we were going to do this instant analysis, breaking down all of night one in order, all of night two in order, which is contrary to how we normally do it. 
we're actually going to do it the way we normally do it. We're going to talk about the biggest matches off the top, and then we're going to break down everything else. And I know that is a little out of order, and it's weird to do it that way for a two-night show, but it's late. Like I said, this is kind of an instant analysis being done. You know, I'm always candid with you guys on the fly. I'm super tired. I want to make sure that we give you the maximum energy for the matches that are most important before we then talk about everything else. And that match that was the most important was the unsanctioned match. Adam Cole against Kyle O'Reilly. We wondered if it would actually main event night two, and it ultimately did. Uh, Both men had new entrance themes. It was really disappointing to see Cole move away from the Undisputed Era one. It Mm. just... The new one wasn't very good, I I will personally say. Uh, Security lined the ring to separate them, and there was some cool lighting work done. The official was not wearing stripes to sell the unsanctioned nature of the match. They immediately went after it, and Cole grabbed a ton of chairs, constantly working on O'Reilly's neck. O'Reilly flew into a seated Cole and punched a chair into his face. There was a strange foreboding energy uh, where people were watching, and it seemed like they were captivated. They were all standing, but they weren't really cheering. Uh, Then the crowd later, and we'll talk about that, got super annoying. It it was a horrible crowd, I have to say. Um, NXT, I think, turned off the ambient noise that they were using a little bit for this match, which ultimately ended up being a mistake. O'Reilly introduced a chain. It was tied to the top rope, so Cole used it as a lariat and helped with a backstabber. Two really smart spots for a 2.8 count. O'Reilly was seated in a chair and ate a shining wizard that threw him backwards into another chair. They battled at ringside, cleared the announcer table, and O'Reilly hit a brain buster into the top of it, but it didn't break, which was a shock. Uh, O'Reilly followed Cole past the barricade, ate a legit TV monitor into the face. Cole emptied a toolbox. That didn't actually come into play that much. O'Reilly locked Cole in a crossface and a triangle choke with the chain wrapped around him. The referee checked Cole's stamina. He kept his arm up, grabbed a tire iron. I guess that was where it really came into play. Drilled O'Reilly in the liver with it to break the hold, and that was a callback to O'Reilly's prior injuries with Finn Balor. There was a lot of really smart storytelling in the match. Uh, Each of them used a chair to sit up and then trade blows. Cole delivered a full arm low blow and a picturesque super kick for a near fall. He wrapped a chair around O'Reilly's neck and grabbed another chair. You just, I guess, to crush his head like a concerto, but like with it wrapped around his neck, the referee yelled that he didn't want to do that. I don't know why the referee is getting involved when it's an unsanctioned match, Uh, but Cole knocked him out cold with no remorse whatsoever. Cole hit a Panama sunrise but no one was there to count. So he threw a chair at O'Reilly's head on the stage. O'Reilly locked a guillotine choke on Cole while on the stage, and Cole just drove both of them through the metal grate on the stage. Cole then kicked out the side of the stage, like with his feet and and punched it out with his hands and dragged O'Reilly through this wreckage of the side of the stage, which was really unique and inventive. It's nothing I've ever seen before. The referee woke up before they returned to the ring. Cole returned the earlier favor by hitting O'Reilly with a brain buster onto the steel steps. He looked like he was out cold, but barely lifted his shoulder at 2.8, didn't even fully kick out. O'Reilly fell and then dodged the last shot, just like Gargano did another callback and got a heel hook on Cole, who wrapped a chain around his fist and punched O'Reilly in the face to break it. O'Reilly countered Panama Sunrise with a neckbreaker, a punt kick, and his own last shot, but Cole kicked out at 2.9, which was a great near fall. O'Reilly was selling like crazy, like really expert level selling. He wrapped Cole's knee in a chair, but Cole used it to knock him off the top rope and folded it upside down as O'Reilly straddled the middle turnbuckle. Cole talked trash, so O'Reilly then gave him some comeuppance with a full arm low blow, grabbed the chain, wrapped it around his knee, and drilled it into Cole's neck through the upside down chair. Cole convulsed. He was selling this 
like he was needed to be hospitalized on the canvas. And O'Reilly covered him, finally got the one, two, three. So, Chris, I thought this was an absolutely spectacular match. It did probably go five to seven minutes too long. It was a little slow at the end. It was drawn out, but it was insane. I have not really seen something like this before. It was just so unique in the tone of it, the drama that was created. It's a five-star match, in my opinion. I know some people aren't going to put it there. Um, but this is an A plus. This is what I want out of professional wrestling. I was totally entertained and I'm giving it that star rating despite what I thought was a total garbage crowd chanting. They couldn't decide what they wanted to chant. They couldn't decide who they wanted to cheer for. They didn't make noise at the right times. The crowd was effing awful. O'Reilly selling was the standout. Cole did a great job in the finish. I loved the match. I wonder what you thought. Yeah, well, first, first on the crowd, is the crowd? It's made up of just people, wrestlers. There, right? They're not. They're not. No, no. Fans, it's right? it's no, no. It's it's like people who are friends and family and frequent visitors to NXT. They okay. they're allowing them to go and get tested and stuff. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't notice the crowd as much as you. Maybe that's just kind of the way it played out for me. But for for those who don't know, I don't watch NXT week to week. I watch the takeovers. I'm typically watching AEW if I'm watching something on Wednesday. So I came into this knowing the story because I listened to Adam's Wednesday's uh, solo pods. Uh, but the video package, I think, sold this for me really well going in. And then you needed a match that would live up to it. And it did. It, it really did. And what this felt like was Ciampa Gargano uh, at WrestleMania 34, TakeOver, takeover New Orleans. Uh, a similar unsanctioned match, two friends who had turned against each other, and that's a really that is a really really high level to reach up to. That was a five star match by Meltzer's ratings, and this is right up there. It, it really is. They, they took it. Uh, they they told a story. They took it. It got physical. It got intense. They did stuff like the Bam Bam Bigelow spot on the stage mm-hmm. uh, uh, and stuff like that. That was um, some really creative stuff. Some new stuff. It was properly violent, which I was curious how much they'd be able to do that kind of in this confined area. Uh, but using the chain and all that different stuff, it was it was tremendous. Yeah, properly violent without being gory. Like yeah. they didn't go to the blood. Uh, which, you know, they can, I guess, technically do in WWE, but they try not to uh, unless it's just something that absolutely needs it. And I think Cole cut his hand, but that was inadvertent. So, yeah, no, it, they really went hardcore with it. But it just had like if that was in front of a sold out takeover crowd, the yeah. place would have gone ape shit. Yeah, it was just something about the crowd and the environment that kind of took me out of the match. And I honestly believe if it had a better crowd, we would be talking about a match over five stars. That's how much I loved it, even with that crowd. And crowd does play a factor in how good a match comes out. The crowd, other thing to talk about- Crowd is huge for NXT. Like yeah. we, had, we, we, had, we had our Twitter spaces deal after night one and, and you thought this could be a top five takeover. For me, it, it just it's not at the level of those best ones because it doesn't have the typical takeover crowd. The typical takeover yeah. crowd is the best crowd in pro wrestling, I think. And not not only not having that, but then having what they did have and things being a little bit weird. It does kind of it, it just in my book as a show overall, it does kind of lower it a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, when, you know, certainly when I said that, I was looking at night one and thinking, well, if night one is this and night two it looks better on paper, then it's going to blow out of the water. It's just going to be insane. And and night two, while night one exceeded expectations, night two in in totality did not live up to expectations, but it wasn't necessarily the fault of any individual person or any individual match. It was just something about tonight's show. It was almost like the same crowd was there from yesterday and they were exhausted. Like that's kind of how it felt while I was watching it. But to wrap up this so we can move on to other matches, Cole at the end after the match was put in a neck brace wrapped up on a stretcher and O'Reilly was really selling the injuries, limping away up on the stage. And the camera lingered as he stared back at Cole. It felt like something big was coming, but there was no post-match attack or angle or anything like that. And it's not that you have to have one, but NXT has conditioned us that when they linger on someone at the end and they put the logo up on the screen, that something's about to happen. And it kind of felt like after that epic angle, that something should happen. Karrion Cross should come out and throw O'Reilly back into the pit. Or Roderick Strong should come out and do something. Or like I don't even Finn Balor comes out and, and him and O'Reilly both battered one loser, one winner, you know, commiserate or something like that. I don't know. It just it just felt like something was not missing, but that I was expecting something that didn't happen. And maybe that's at my fault for my expectation. Um Ultimately, it was a creative match. Very creative. It was a creative finish. I've never seen a finish like that before. It was an absolute ass kicking both ways. And really, my biggest gripe with the entire thing was the crowd. It it just was truly terrible. Um, And I know not everyone may feel the same way or maybe didn't notice it. But as someone who's watching it in a quiet hotel room, fixated on the screen, no sound around me, like just literally only hearing what I, you know, only paying attention to what was on this little screen that I'm using. Um, it stood out to me how bad the crowd was. And I thought that was a detriment to it. Uh, we'll move on to the co-main event of night two, the NXT championship, Finn Balor against Karrion Cross. I, I didn't mention the video package for Cole O'Reilly. I should have, it was incredible, but there was a badass video package for the Balor cross match mm-hmm. and NXT, despite making Cole and O'Reilly the main event, they made Balor Cross feel like it was the biggest title fight in the world. It, it was just incredible. Balor got a really cool entrance that showed all of his NXT accomplishments on the uh, Capitol Wrestling Center screens. He no-sold Cross's power early, frustrated him immensely. Balor then wore him down by hyperextending an elbow and stomping on his ribs. Cross sold it all really well. Cross rolled through a northern light suplex, hit a lariat, and planted Balor. Balor countered the Saito suplex with knees and a chest stomp, but Cross came back to hit one, uh, Saito suplex that is, and Balor set up his forearm finisher. Uh, Balor countered with a Pele kick, two missile drop kicks, and a coup de gras, but he didn't cover right away, and Cross countered with a kick out into a straitjacket. Balor escaped, wrenched Cross's neck back as Scarlet screamed at Cross. He responded to those screams and drove a forearm into the back of Balor's head, probably a dozen times. Now, in a lot of matches in WWE, you do something like that, you get disqualified. (laughs) And Chris, uh, you know, we'll pause here. We'll we'll get to the finish in a second. I thought they were going to DQ Cross, giving Balor a reason to retain the title, having Cross look strong and giving a reason for a rematch between the two. Yeah, I didn't know what quite to make of that because that was kind of in my mind too, but it was also properly brutal and just simply coming in, thinking they could go either way on who wins this. Now, now when 
when Finn comes out in the normal jacket, he's got the elbow, uh, the shoulder paint on there to kind of point out the injuries that they've had. I got that, but he didn't have the full on face paint. And whenever he doesn't, you know, there's a chance he can lose. Well, so the way that was really. Yeah, Sorry, I since you go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's okay. Since you haven't really been watching NXT, he has not done the Balor thing since joining NXT. Uh, the uh, Demon Balor thing since, since joining back, NXT. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's gone. That's not a part of his character anymore. Yeah. So um, he's well, had. I, they still showed it in the video packages yes. and stuff like that. So the, the no, idea I'm just saying, was still there. Yeah, I'm just saying he does. He he's been in numerous matches where that otherwise would have come out, like back in the day, it used to. And he doesn't do that anymore. So it, right. I understand I understand coming from a place of not, you know, having seen all of those matches potentially, but just to kind of let you know and, and let the audience know who maybe is watching NXT this and listening to this and doesn't really watch NXT week to week, he has not been the demon character for over a year at this point. No, I know. That's why I was curious if he yeah. was going to for this because gotcha. Karen Cross gotcha. and they do the whole, you know, devil type of stuff i was just curious if it was so when it, it when it didn't when he didn't come on like that i was like oh okay i guess we're, we're sticking with what they're doing here so yeah but yeah when that sequence was happening it was properly brutal i did wonder hey is this going to be a way to get out of this match yeah yeah i mean it was brutal as hell and, and and balor sold it like an expert i mean it was it was actually truly a great spot and i thought it looked really good um but yeah so cross drove the forearm into the back of his head like a dozen times balor was lifeless on the canvas. So Cross picked him up, threw him into the ring, uh, or into the middle of the ring, I should say, uh, hit a release German suplex, then a doomsday Saito and the running forearm. But Balor still crawled to his feet despite eating all three of those moves. So Cross hit a second forearm to the back of the neck, rolled Balor over for the pinfall to become the new NXT champion. I actually thought that this was a fantastic match. It was easily, easily by a mile Cross's best match in NXT. And from what I understand, because I never saw him in Impact, the best match of his career, period, at least that people have seen on TV. And this is on the back of Cross having his prior best match in NXT against against Santos Escobar. So there's some people that are really helping elevate this guy, where you have to remember when he beat Keith Lee, people were really down on him. Now, you still may be down on him, but you have to admit that the guys had a couple of really great matches. I thought the story was exceedingly well told with Balor delivering on his promise of tearing Cross down, forcing him to find something he did not possess previously. It was Scarlett who ended up giving that to him. It was just tough to get too amped up for the finish because it's been obvious that Cross would win the title back since the second he returned back to NXT television, you knew that this would ultimately be the finish of the match. Balor didn't even really get a hope spot in the match. The goal was to let Cross look strong while keeping Balor solid, and it worked. It worked out probably to a B plus match. Maybe you could get to A minus if you want in the four to four point two five range. I loved it, and the only thing I'll say on the back here, and then I'll let you talk, is this Balor NXT title reign may well be remembered as the greatest in the history of the NXT men's title. Match of the year contenders, technical masterpieces, main evented a ton of takeovers, and then ultimately he did what any good champion and any veteran did and and should do. You go out on your back, you lose after getting absolutely eviscerated and putting over a monster. And it's difficult usually for a guy Balor's size to put over a monster. He did it effectively. So this match accomplished everything it needed to accomplish. Yeah, exactly. It, it was what it needed to be. Obviously, they had plans for Cross. They really liked Cross. And 
to bring him back, to, to have him come back from injury and to kind of reinsert him into that spot makes sense. He's not the kind of guy where the chase is the point. You know, he's the, he's the big monster. Right. He's supposed to be the guy at the top and people chase him. So that sets it up that way. He wins that match in a, in a dominating style to really reestablish himself right back where he was, which I think is the right call. And I didn't see a ton of Finn in this role. I know that I, I've seen bits and pieces here and there, but, you know, he's obviously does great stuff. And, and as always, you're kind of curious if he might go back up now that he doesn't have the title or if he'll stay there because I know he likes what they're doing there. So we'll see. But as as it relates to Cross, I, I think it's a good. this is a good spot to put him back in. Agreed. And I thought, you know, they did a really good job presenting Cross as strong. The problem that they now face with him before we move on is he is now a hugely dominant champion. And the truth is there's just not anyone else on that roster right now where I look at them and say, okay, that's the guy who, you know, doesn't have to be now, but four, five, six, seven, eight months from now, that's the person that's going to beat him for the title. I don't have that name. Right. I don't I don't think it's going to be Champa. And if it's not Champa, I mean, you can come up with a number of names, just people we can talk about, you know, that were on this program. Um, but I don't necessarily know who that's going to be. And that is a little bit of a problem for NXT, but we will get to that down the line. Let's move over to the night one main event, the women's championship, Io Shirai against Raquel Gonzalez. I love the gravity of the introductions. They really should have done it for the NXT UK title match on that show as well, but I get it. It's the main event. So that they saved it for this. Uh, Shirai hit a tope suicida and Dakota Kai tried to take out Shirai. So the referee ejected her, her being Kai. Uh, Gonzalez lawn darted Shirai into the ring post and got a ton of offense with the flip slam and a wishbone stretch. Shirai hit a 619 springboard missile dropkick and code red for a couple near falls. She avoided Gonzalez picking her off the top rope for her finisher by rolling into a cross face, but Gonzalez broke it. Shirai hit her moonsault on Gonzalez, but it was on the elevated stage. So she had a roller back into the ring. Before she did that, she ran her down with a meteora. Uh, Shirai then climbed atop that huge skull at the entrance and flew off of it for a massive splash. Io Shirai is a freaking psychopath in the best possible <laughs> way. I say that truthfully. Um, and I, it felt like that was the winning move. So then, as I mentioned, Shirai rolled Gonzalez back into the ring and hit her, her moon over moonsault, and surely that was it. She just jumped off the skull. She hit a huge moonsault. That's her finisher. It's over. But Gonzalez kicks out at 2.9. Gonzalez caught Shirai outside the ring and hit her choke bomb finisher, but both women were down injured. They re-entered the ring. Gonzalez caught Shirai with a lariat and then hit the choke bomb finisher once again to become the new NXT Women's Champion. This match, to me, believe it or not, actually over-delivered, but it was Shirai who really carried this entire thing. It just goes to show how great she truly is. Gonzalez was a deserving winner, don't get me wrong, and the title change was a long time coming. We we said a long time ago, Tony Storm was going to challenge her, EO would win, Raquel Gonzalez would challenge her, and Raquel Gonzalez would win. It turned out Shirai challenged Gonzalez, but alas, the same result ultimately. Uh, so I like her as the champion, her being Gonzalez. There's no hate whatsoever in the booking or the decision-making. It was also the strongest finish on night one in terms of building drama to the end of a match. It wasn't the best match on the show, but it was a worthy main event for night one. And I'm really happy for the woman that is affect affectionately known 
as Big Mommy Cool. Ultimately, I think this was in the B plus A minus range, very similar to the Finn Balor carrying cross match, and probably you know about a four four point two five star situation. You have to remember that having so many matches as good as they were on night one, and so many matches close together across both nights makes grading actually impossible because how do you compare one A minus match to another, especially if you're giving star ratings? It makes it very difficult. But this was a fantastic card night one for a regular takeover. And this I thought was a worthy main event, despite maybe some other matches on the show being better. Yeah, I, I didn't, I'm not as, I haven't seen her a ton, but I'm not as high on Rakugan's Oz as I guess other people are. I know Yoshirai has been the champion forever and it was a bot. Some, someone had to take the title and, and I get that it made sense. I, for whatever reason, to me, Rokaga Justice isn't quite at that level yet, and maybe she'll get there and, and, and whatnot. But she obviously has a lot of uh, intangibles and stuff that you like. Like you said, you know, Shirai was the one flying around for a lot of this match, doing a lot of the stuff. And you expect that because she's one of the best women's wrestlers in the world. Um, so, yeah, it, it was, it was, um, I thought it was all right. I kind of put it in that B range for me in terms of uh, how the match was and, and what the story was. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll finish up here with this. For me, and, and this is probably something you can't really weigh in on, but for me, Shirai's 10-month title run with the NXT Women's Championship is the second best in the history of that title, only to Asuka and her never-ending uh, undefeated run. She basically beat every single challenger in front of her with the exception of Gonzalez right. and had numerous incredible matches. So in a two-day event, we saw the best NXT men's title reign end and the second best NXT women's title reign end. And the people who won those titles in Raquel Gonzalez's case, I'm not going to call her green, but she is inexperienced. And in Cross's case, doesn't have the star power that Balor does. So it is going to be an interesting new kind of era for NXT to see these people as your main champions and kind of wonder well, are they going to be able to carry the brand the same way freaking Finn Balor and Io Shirai did? That is a high mantle to climb, and we will soon find out whether they can do it. Uh, let's kind of stay on night one, because now that we've actually covered the main events, we can talk about maybe what I thought were possibly, arguably, if you especially if you didn't love the Adam Cole-Kyle O'Reilly match, potentially the two best matches uh, combined on these shows. We'll start with the NXT UK Championship, Walter against Tommaso Ciampa. Uh, Champa did a cool move where he sat on the top turnbuckle, staring down Walter during his entrance. Champa avoided a chop outside, and Walter broke the top of the announce table, slamming his hand into it. Champa worked on that injured hand all match. He went on a run during a commercial break of like 15 straight clotheslines, where Walter only fell into the ropes and never fell down. I've never seen someone do that before. I thought it was really funny. Uh, then he hit white noise. I forgot what Champa calls it. Uh, for a near fall, but could not lift Walter for fairy, fairy tale ending. And then suddenly out of nowhere, he does. Hits it on him and gets a 4.8 count. Walter beat on Champa's chest, but Champa picked him up somewhat impossibly while on the middle rope for an avalanche white noise for another 4.8. It was an insane move. Uh, Walter tried to hold Champa down, but Champa kicked out by lifting his body off the ground, off the canvas with his neck. Walter stomped on the neck, twisted the neck between his feet, and hit two power bombs with a fold over cover. And I thought that was it. And it was still a 2.8. This thing was peaking in fourth gear, like, like just idling right there, getting ready to switch. And just as it was about to get into fifth gear, 
Walter did a chokehold release German suplex and then chopped the life out of uh, Champa with a huge slap to the chest. And that got the win. The finish came out of nowhere for me because usually Walter wins with a splash if he can't win with a powerbomb. So I thought the finish didn't have the same build that a normal match finish would and it therefore lacked drama in the final moment. I think adding that drama may have sent it truly over the top, but it was a unique finish because you never see matches end like that, dude. It totally lived up to expectations in terms of technicality, brutality, all the alities, uh, not as good as the Isla Dragunov match, I, I would say, which that was five or 5.25 stars, but this is a 4.75 star match, like an A or an A plus, like a 97 out of a hundred. If you're actually grading it, it was an absolute killer. And I loved every second of it. Yeah. I, I mean, on the finish, it's, it's, it's good to have those out of nowhere. You know, typically it's very, not like WWE. WWE usually, finishes with a roll-up or a distraction roll-up or a finisher. Like, you don't typically win any other way. So you need matches like that to end like that so everything else becomes more believable. So I liked it. I mean, this was brutal. I mean, we talk about the unsanctioned match, having all the weapons and being brutal in a different way. But, man, they beat the ever-living piss out of each other in this match, especially Walter on on Ciampa. And, yeah, this is – like a lot of the other matches on this card, exactly what it needed to be. We knew Ciampa wasn't going to win the UK championship, but he kind of had to go down swinging. And and that's exactly what happened. And, and this was this was a, a heck of a lot of fun. Anytime we see Walter on the main NXT, I am a big fan. The, the Imperium uh, Undisputed Era match was my favorite match of all of 2020. So I'm big Walter guy. I, they said... See if I wrote this down. They said that Walter. Oh, yeah. WWE staff tweeted this. If he's the NXT UK champion by June 23rd of this year, he will have held that championship for 50% of the time it's existed. <laughs> Just crazy. It's crazy. And another thing, when they were doing the the graphics on the entrance and they talk about they break down each person, the intangible under Walter's name was simply unbeatable <laughs> that was <laughs> intangible which i thought was funny uh i love the that guy- they brought down the microphone for the match pre-match made it feel like a big deal even though it's not a title match uh, and also Ciampa looks a lot better in the trunks i think than he does with the pants he does it well i mean just to clarify it was a title match just not a nxc us You're right, title right, match. right yeah yeah no it makes sense um no the funny thing is walter actually hasn't lost clean in a singles match in like three years. Yeah. And it's to a guy. It was to a guy who like he had to drop the title to. And that guy is now in NXT UK with him. So it's actually pretty funny. Uh, no, Walter's incredible. This match was incredible. Um, he's just a killer. He's a murderer. I got a DM. I don't ha- I'm not going to play the sound. But uh, Lil underscore Nate, you guys have heard of him at MT Stewart 4. He said he loves that Walter doesn't have a finisher. He just beats you until you're dead. Yeah. But that's actually his finisher, like yeah. murder. His finisher is murder. Like <laughs> he just does whatever is necessary to end you. He, he's the perfect villain in that way. Like usually it's a power bomb. If it's not a power bomb, then it's a splash. And if it's not a splash, he's just going to literally chop you in the chest until you don't get up. And that's what happened here with Champa. It was incredible. I loved it. Uh, now, the other match on night one, and this is why night one ended up being overall top to bottom the better show. Uh, you know, between the two nights. And it's, I mean, listen, we're talking about this thing 
as one show, right? So, so it all counts together. But if you were dividing it up night one, night two, this is really the reason why it went over the top. And it was the tag team championship match vacant titles, MSK against Grizzled Young Veterans, and then against Legato Del Fantasma. So before I even start, credit to them for using the good triple threat rules, which yes. is three dudes legal at the same time. It's the only way to do it. Uh, there were tags, but rules were not consistently followed. However, because triple threats are no disqualification, it was actually acceptable to do that in this type of match. Uh, it was chaos at the jump with athletic, ridiculous moves by all three teams. Legato took out the other four at ringside. One guy did a corkscrew, the other a springboard splash at the same time. Then they broke out one of my favorite all-time moves with a double van terminator from separate corners yeah. into one. There was no, technically there was no um, chair used, but it's still the same move. Uh, it was coast to coast from Shane McMahon, but he stole that, not stole it, borrowed it, whatever, from Rob Van Dam. It was ridiculous. Uh, Raul Mendoza hit a lion salt for a near fall. Wesley got a hot tag with a Tope Suicida, Tope Cannonball, double handspring Pele kick, and then the tandem push moonsault. Zach Gibson shoved Lee's hand into the padding of a turnbuckle, and James Drake dropkicked it. Lee was in an elbow lock, and Nash Carter just kind of slid his arm under his partner's arm to save a potential tap out. Legato came in with a missile dropkick to fully break the fall, and then Lee hit the Russian leg sweep kick again, as always. This move needs a damn name. Legato hit Lee with that for a 2.9 count. Uh, Grizzled Young Veterans connected for a Tope Doomsday device off the stage on Wild, while MSK took out Mendoza with a double stomp on a fireman's carry. That left MSK and GYV standing across from each other, which is the rivalry in this match. We talked about that on the Ultimate Preview. MSK took out Drake and hit the elevated blockbuster on Gibson for the 1-2-3 to win the vacant titles. Holy shit, man. Like I literally wrote that as a note. Holy shit, man. Uh, constant action, insane athleticism. All three of these teams could be on the main roster tomorrow. That's how good they are, especially grizzled young veterans, which could fit there immediately. It's almost the same grade as the prior match. Maybe if that one was a 97 out of 100, this is like a 96 out of 100. It's a full A, nearly an A+, 4.75 stars. It was a kick-ass freaking match. It wasn't long, but it was non-stop. And we talked six months ago or so, the NXT tag team division was ravaged. It had no teams. It was lost. And now you look at these three teams, and there's plenty more where these came from, and you say, holy shit, man, they built that up real quick. This deserves all the praise that I just gave it. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I don't know if I've said this before, but... If I was to ever get somebody into try to get somebody into pro wrestling who's never watched pro wrestling, I would show them an NXT tag team match at a takeover because they are they always deliver every single time. They're always absolute hot fire. And this was no different. I didn't know much about any of these teams coming in, but I, they completely got me hooked by what they did throughout the match. Loved it from start to finish. Um, I was surprised actually this didn't open the show because takeovers often open with the tag match. That's really, really exciting. So I was kind of surprised it didn't, um, but it was still great. Great start to finish. The only thing I wrote down as a negative was you mentioned that double coast to coast and commentary didn't 
sell it. I think Beth Phoenix was like in the middle of telling a story about something and the move happened and they just kept going in the story. Barely even acknowledged it. I hadn't seen that move before. That was absolutely crazy. It was sick. Yeah. And I'm in, and I've, I've just, the commentary should have been paying attention better and sold that a lot better. Cause I thought that was a crazy move and they, they would, they deserve to get pointed out for that. Yeah, no, it was, it was truly great. It was very, very exciting. We'll move back tonight too, uh, and talk about the cruiserweight unification match. Santos Escobar against Jordan Devlin, both champions in a ladder match. Uh, Devlin opened with a springboard moonsault outside. The ladder was quickly introduced and Escobar dominated. Devlin jumped onto the ladder and hit a slingshot, then jumped off with a spinning DDT. Escobar ate a back body drop into a ladder, then a Spanish fly um, crossbody and slingshot cutter from Devlin. The ladder was then put in the corner when Devlin climbed it and did a picturesque moonsault off the freaking top of the ladder. Devlin started climbing for the first time underneath the titles when Legado del Fantasma ran in, pulled him down and beat his ass, throwing him into the steel steps. Escobar thanked them, told them, get out of here. I got it the rest of the way. Two ladders were set up and Devlin hit a second Spanish fly. This time, two rungs from the top of the ladder, they fell down. It was freaking incredible. Six bot. Uh, They battled at the top of the ladder when Escobar headbutted Devlin off of it and through a ladder propped up in the corner. The match began with a headbutt and it ended with a headbutt, which was pretty good storytelling as well. So Devlin crashes into this ladder. It looks like he got folded in half, his head nailed. Um, it, it was a brutal spot. It looked like he got murdered. And Escobar then slowly, methodically climbed to the top to grab the titles and become the undisputed cruiserweight champion. You know, I'm not going to go ahead and say this was the greatest ladder match of all time or anything like that, but it was a tremendous one with some pretty sick spots and more than anything, pretty good storytelling. A bigger crowd would have gone wild for this. After the match, uh, Escobar's son donned his Phantasma mask and celebrated with him on stage. Legato looked great while celebrating together. And then I'll add one additional detail because I saw WWE tweet this out. This was the first time ever in WWE, WCW, or NXT that a cruiserweight title was defended in a ladder match. This thing lived up to the hype completely. I'd probably give it a B plus or four stars, something like that. Absolutely nothing to sneeze at. Damn good ladder match and something I will 100% watch again. Yeah, and in speaking of WCW, I think they said that Devlin's reign as the Cruiserweight Tramp is the longest since going back to WCW, but I feel like you kind of got to put an asterisk on that because of the pandemic and that everything was going with it. But Of course. Yeah, this was... This was, you know, the expectations were high for this. You talk about a unification championship ladder match that Shawn Michaels, you know, basically is the one who who gives it the stipulation. That's a lot to live up to. And it absolutely did. Uh, I mean, it, it that final bump by Devlin off off the ladder into the other ladder that crashes and I don't know, he hit his head on it. Oh man, that was brutal. That was brutal. But it was a great finish for the match. I said this, I don't know if I was on the last TakeOver uh, post-show or an instant analysis show or not, but that dude is a star. He looks like a star. He carries himself like a star. And he's a guy, you know, you talk about who's someone who can build themselves up to fight to take the title off of Karrion Cross at some point. I feel like he's the guy who could do that. He, he, he's, he, He's, 
I don't know if, I don't want to say bigger than he, he looks bigger than he is, I guess. You know, sometimes the 205 guys, they look small. He doesn't Agreed. look small. He looks, I, I mean, get him in the ring with Randy Orton, maybe things look different, but that guy, he is mega, he feels like megastar potential every time I see him. Yeah, he's not like Alberto Del Rio sized, but he's Andrade sized at a minimum. I mean, he, you know, they're, he he is a bigger guy, and especially when he's wearing the suits, he looks larger than life. Yeah. And uh, now he's incredible. And you know, I, I'll, I'll point out again. I had an interview with him on our uh, Ultimate Preview show that um, I've been telling you guys to listen to, and you did. And I've gotten a lot of tweets about it. Very good. Just check check our mentions. I, I loved it. The guy's great. I think he has a really bright future. It was a damn good match. It was a great opener for Night Two. You know, as much as we can say Night Two maybe didn't live up to the stage set from Night One. As an opener, that thing was an incredible match, and it was a great start to the show. So that I, I think a lot the, I think night two had higher expectations because of some of the matches, and it I did. think it probably met the expectations. But night one exceeded the expectations. Oh yeah, night night one totally exceeded the expectations. That's a great way to put it. Uh, let's move over to the entire North American Championship picture. So on night one, there was a gauntlet eliminator. Swerve and Leon Ruff started. Ruff hit a springboard cutter off the announce table. It was crazy. Uh, he then countered a attempted avalanche powerbomb into a Hurricane Rana, and Bronson Reed came out third. The tandem German suplex, Cameron Grimes was fourth, hit a beautiful moonsault on Reed. He then paid off Swerve with cash to team up. Ruff got hit with a cave-in during Dexter Loomis's entrance. Swerve eliminated him. Loomis cleaned house, had a monster battle with Reed. Then LA Knight came in, cutting a promo on everyone. The promo suck. I hate LA Knight. <laughs> We're uh, gonna get into this. Making it a fatal five way. I don't think we have time to get into this. We're probably gonna have to get into I, I, I know, it. I know. Um, not much of a gauntlet match to start. It wasn't like a gauntlet, meaning like a lot of people weren't coming in and out, but that's okay. Uh, Loomis had silence locked in on Grimes. Knight flipped him over for a jackknife cover and a surprise elimination. I thought that was a genius spot and really well done by Knight. I gotta, gotta give him credit. Uh, Reed capitalized with a sent on to take out Knight. Loomis locked in silence for payback on him afterward. Uh, Grimes then caught Reed with that Spanish crossbody. The fact that Reed can even do that, by the way, flip himself like that at his size is absolutely insane. Swerve hit house call and countered a Grimes roll up using the tights, leaving him and Reed as the only two left. So you know the Silver King was excited because these are the two guys that needed to shine. I love Swerve, obviously. I want him to get every push in the world. Reed, I like very much, and I just think that they've been underutilizing him. So I was very happy to see them specifically as the final two. Swerve slammed Reed off the middle rope onto the ring apron in a six spot. Swerve then hit a perfect 450 splash in the ring for a 4.78 count. Reed ate three house calls and again kicked out at 4.7. And my annoyance here is this is really kind of Swerve's finisher, and three do absolutely nothing to this guy. I know he's a big guy, but that makes Swerve look ineffective. Reed came back with a powerbomb, reverse cradle pile driver, and the tsunami for the win. Once Loomis was eliminated, it was pretty clear that Reed would take the match, and that was definitely the right call because it's been start and stop booking with him for six months. He needed a real title match opportunity and a battle of substance. Now he gets it. I thought it was tough to follow the opener, which we'll talk about coming up soon, Pete Dunne and Kushida, but it was a worthy match, and again, it was another like B-plus four-star match. Yeah, another match that did everything it needed to do for all the people involved. Um, the, the thing I'll say about I'm a big fan of L.A. Knight, formerly Eli Drake. Uh, I he he is incredibly charismatic and interesting on the mic. Whenever he's talking, I'm paying attention. I, I I'm not saying he's the best wrestler in the world by any means or anything like that, but he 
he he carries himself in a way that's different than a lot of the guys uh, on the roster or wherever wherever he's around. So yeah, part of it is you're supposed to hate him. I mean, it's kind of the deal, but but he always he talks in a way that it's like he talks kind of like Stone Cold Steve Austin, but in the Rock's cadence. Like the way he says it sounds like the rock. It's it's always fascinating whenever I hear him talk. So I'm trying to figure out who he sounds like. But I really like him. I, I I'm not saying he's a future NXT champion, face of the company type of guy, but I think he's a really effective heel. He's a really effective promo. What one he he's one of the top Mike guys out there, I think. And I am always entertained and paying attention when he's on my screen. So I was disappointed he didn't win because I wanted to see more of him, but Bronson Reed is great, and obviously that's set up what we got on night two. The name sucks, the gimmick sucks, the look sucks, and I wish uh, they just let I him think, keep his name. I, I, I mean, I think, I think he has, I think he clearly has Mike talent, but it's repetitive. His promos in NXT are ex- exceedingly repetitive, and not repetitive in a good way like The Rock and Austin are, where you can like, he, he feels say old fashioned theme. in that sense. So yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know, know. I, I, don't uh, know. I like it. It's for me, it's a total failure so far, but you know, I mean, he's going to be there, so we'll see if it turns around. Uh, now, the North American title, Bronson Reed won the number one contendership. They contested that on night two against Johnny Gargano. Uh, Austin Theory was ringside. Reed toyed with Gargano, threw him around early. Gargano got the upper hand by shoving Reed into the announce table, which literally shifted. It was slow for a while, this match. Reed hit a Uranagi and then a vertical suplex into a fireman's carry slam, which I think he calls the jagged edge. Gargano climbed up and down Reed's body, uh, and then Reed broke a Gargano escape with the ropes. Uh, Reed stopped one final beat and threw Gargano into a razor's edge, one of my favorite moves, by the way, over the top rope from the stage into the ring. Awesome. Uh, But he then missed the ensuing tsunami, and Gargano kicked him in the head for a near fall. Theory interfered with the second tsunami, and Gargano countered an avalanche hurricanrana with a powerbomb, but Theory put Gargano's foot on the rope to break the fall from Reed's powerbomb. Reed caught Gargano flying outside and threw him into Theory. Then Tope suicided Theory into the barricade. Reed countered one final beat with a side slam. Reed then went for and missed a moonsault. And as Gorilla Monsoon used to say, he went to the well one too many times. Gargano took advantage and hit one final beat twice. So two final beats, I guess, for the one, two, three. Ultimately, this was an interesting match, an interesting piece of booking. It was a clean finish. Gargano looked extremely strong beating Reed while not damaging Reed too much, considering how much it took to defeat him. I did think we'd see a title change here, so I was a little surprised, but this was still a good look for Reed. I'm not sure Gargano is the best entering counterpart to make Reed shine. Gargano seems to work better with guys at least a little bit closer to his size. There are dudes like a Finn Balor who could really make Reed shine, but I just, I don't think it worked that well together, but despite me not even thinking it worked that well, it was a good piece of business. That was like a flat B, a 3.75 star match. And it was entertaining. Yeah. Like I said, it's kind of weird if the bigger guy is the one chasing the smaller guy. And I know he's got Austin theory to help the damn numbers game to try to kind of work on that. But I I think you're making a a good point there. I, I was also surprised that, um, didn't change the title, but something I noticed as soon as Gargano got the pin to win commentary immediately talked about how impressive a performance it was for Bronson Reed Mm -hmm. and, and, and put him over like the second that match was over. So clearly, you know, that's still a, a, it's something they want to emphasize and get across here. 
uh, even in defeat. So, you know, uh, this was, this is, oh, look at the card. This is probably the least, the worst, I don't want to say worst, but the least interesting match of, between the two nights, but it wasn't bad by any means. I would say second least to the match that I plan to talk about last, the women's tag team title match. Yeah. Which I didn't think was bad. Two, yeah. I, I just didn't think it had that much interest is all, is yeah. to your point. But before we get to that, let's talk about the penultimate match I have here, which if you're talking about ratings and star grades is better than the placement I have on this breakdown. Uh, Pete Dunne and Kushida, which opened night one, it was nonstop action with neither man maintaining momentum for a long period of time. Dunne hit an X-plex onto the ring apron early, but Kushida ran the entrance ramp and kicked Dunne's arm. Kushida hit an avalanche hoverboard lock slam from the top rope, but Dunne reached the ropes. Kushida twisted Dunne's body and got a modified armbar, but Dunne found the ropes again. Kushida switched to hoverboard lock from one arm to another arm and Dunn reached the ropes again. And it was just an incredible uh, show of technical prowess by both guys. After Dunn finally powered out, he used joint manipulation to snap Kushida's hand and soon hit bitter end his finisher for the win. I did. I thought this was a top tier wrestling match, but it only really got about like 10 minutes or so due to this being on TV. And you know, it's a two hour show with a ton of pay-per-view quality matches. It probably could have gone another five or 10 minutes if they had extra time without missing a beat, but it was fantastic. Probably in that 4.25 star range and a minus or something like that for me, a perfect match to open the show. I know you said the tag team match was your expectation. It was mine too. I actually thought that's what would open the show, but in lieu of that, they made the right choice with Kushida and Pete Dunne. Yeah, it, it worked in, in, it was a good match, physical match, fun match. I, I love Kushida, really creative dude. But a couple things I wrote down in this match was, and this is going to feel like um, the common complaints from the old timers to the new, to the younger rest, not that he's young, but kind of the new age wrestling. And I guess I'm vintage Cosmini for a reason, but I hate the snapping fingers spot. Hmm. It, it, it's not just a lot, a lot of different people do that, but Theoretically, if someone's essentially breaking your fingers in a match, you, you cannot use, use that hand for the yes. rest of the match. And no. No. It, that's never how it ends. Unless it's a finish, that's really how it ends up playing out. And similarly, there was a, a, a bit where I think it was the same arm. It might have been the same arm where the fingers were snapped. Kushida's hand was down and Pete Dunne was kicking his elbow. And man, it looked brutal. Like it looked like his arm was snapping. It was, it was a great look, but within like 20 seconds, yeah. Kushida's thrown a punch with that hand, with that arm, with that hand. And it was like, all right, you, you got to make these. I know you're trying to get everything in here in this 10 minutes opening match, but you got to sell some of the stuff a little bit. Uh, that was just something that kind of uh, annoyed me with that match. And no, I know you, we see this stuff a lot, but it, it really stuck out in this match. I think it's a fair criticism. The joint manipulation stuff is not necessarily for me either for similar reasons. I will say the Pete Dunne um, match with Finn Balor, Balor sold the hell out of all of the joint manipulation. At times was unable to use his hands and, and sold it that way. Eventually at the end, he was able to recover some power in his hands and won, but you know, they did tell that story. So I, you know, Japanese wrestling, they, they, they sell, but they don't necessarily, you know, sell stuff like that, I guess is the best way to put it. It's late. I'm, it's, I'm finding it tough to explain, but they, they sell moves, but sometimes they do recover quickly. 
And maybe that's a little bit on Kushida for that. But I, I don't think for me personally, even though I don't love the joint manipulation, it didn't take away from the quality of the match and the, how entertained I was by it. But I do agree that if I had an option, I would do less of it, even though Pete Dunne is largely what his gimmick is about. Um, moving into the final main show match from these takeovers, uh, I think the yeah, night two. This was the second match on the show. The Women's Tag Team Championship, Ember Moon and Shotzi Blackheart defending against The Way. This was a, a big drop in intensity from the opener as it was more fun and less serious at the beginning. But business did pick up as it went on. There was a perfect spot on the card for it second after that cruiserweight unification match because there really wasn't another place to put it. There was a super duper plex and Indy Hartwell got a near fall after a pop-up sit down. Spinebuster slam. I've never seen that before. The way didn't catch Blackheart on a tope suicida, and she was actually kind of lucky to survive it. She went like headfirst into the barricade. Yeah. Moon hit a man. cannonball. It was really brutal. Yeah. Uh, Moon hit a cannonball sent on outside, though. Uh, Candice LeRae was singled out for a cool double team flip slam that looked like a finisher, but it was a near fall. The way hit an assisted move together for another near fall as well. And finally, the champions did a double tag. Moon hit a double eclipse, followed by a flying sent on of Blackheart for the title retention. Double Eclipse didn't make much sense from a technical standpoint, how you would do that move to two people at once. Uh, It was a fun match and these people are supposed to be fun. That's the point. You guys know I love the way. I actually really like Moon and Blackheart together. So it was fun, but it was unspectacular. We knew there wasn't going to be a title change. So it was like, I don't know, a C plus or a B minus, like 3.25, 3.5 stars. Really good for the second match on the show. And when you talk about a 3.5 star match potentially. I mean, that's a really damn good match, right? Like, like, but it just happened to be on the lower side of this takeover. Yeah. I think, I think I enjoyed this one more than the North American match because this was exactly what it needed to be. It wasn't going to be a five-star match. It was supposed to be fun. It was supposed to be just kind of, do do some fun stuff. And that's essentially what it was. It accomplished what it needed to accomplish. You mentioned the double eclipse, which was awesome. But the camera angle on it was terrible. Oh, yeah. It showed how fake it was. Yeah. It was well because it was from the bottom. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't even know she jumps off to do it. You don't know who she's doing it to until you couldn't. It took you a second to realize it was a double eclipse in the first place because I didn't know who was going to be at the bottom when, but when, the, when do, the camera panned. But if uh, you're going to do a double eclipse, you do it where you have each person yeah, under you, you one do an, arm. You do it. Yeah. It's, under it's, shoulder. I, I, I imagine yeah. it's freaky. I mean, it's already an incredibly difficult move to do to one person, let alone two. Of course. Of but course, it's, of course. the camera angles. I, I, I was fine with it. It was it, the idea was that it was a fun match. I'm willing to suspend my disbelief for that. I just wish the camera shot had been the hard cam, so we could right. actually see the impact of it. I, I feel like it for to to do a double eclipse, you really gotta like you know yeah. emphasize it and sell it in the camera angle. Oh, I, I don't. I, don't, I assume we got a replay. I guess I don't remember, but we did. WWE we did. also often does that with the high flying stuff. Is they'll give you the camera angle from the bottom. And it takes away all the context of how crazy a move was until you see it on the replay. And it's annoying. And, and to be fair, they did give us the replay. But yes, it just it was it was a sloppy move. But again, so that was probably, again, the quote unquote worst match, I would say, on the actual main shows. And it was still pretty good. Like if that that was a main event caliber TV show match that yeah. just happened to be the, quote, again, quote unquote, 
worst match on the two takeovers. So no offense to the women, um, but you know, hope certainly hoped for a little bit more from that. Uh, well, a couple more tidbits to kind of talk about before, before we get out of here. Night one, the pre-show match was Tony Storm against Zoe Stark. This was an unexpected brawl for me. Stark hit a picture-perfect German suplex, followed with a kip-up and a sliding boot for a couple near falls. Stark ate like a version of a glam slam and two German suplexes, but countered Storm Zero, which is Tony Storm's finisher, into an inside cradle for a shocking one, two, three. It felt really good to see Zoe Stark win a match. She just debuted a couple months ago and has been in big matches nearly every week with nearly every top tier woman in NXT, and she's looked amazing doing it. It's the biggest win of her career, to be sure. C-plus match. Uh, I thought it was really fun and a great pre-show match. Yeah, no, it, it was fun. I, my only, uh, my other thought was just like, man, Tony Storm being relegated to the to a to a kickoff show match was uh, was was tough. But I I don't know much about her, Zoe Stark, but I was impressed. She looks familiar. Was she? Did she have a different name somewhere else? I she know. had a, yeah, she had a different name elsewhere. Um, like L- Lacey Ryan, maybe. Yeah, Something I feel like, like that. I've seen her somewhere else. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, at this time of at this time of night, it's slipping my mind. But yeah. yes, no, she did work elsewhere and did have a different name. Uh, but she's just made a huge impression on them so far, yeah. and uh, it's cool to see. Uh, Triple H did address Tony Storm being on the kickoff show and losing. He's like, "Look, he goes, Tony Storm's Tony Storm. Like she's already set, and like she didn't get hurt whatsoever by letting Zoe Stark beat her. Yeah. This was a big moment for Zoe Stark, not a bad moment for Tony Storm. So there's nothing negative there. Nothing's happening. It was." Just kind of a cool moment to, for Zoe Stark to go over, and that was nice. For sure. The kickoff, the kickoff match for night two pre-show match was Brazongo against Killian Dane and Drake Maverick. This was a typical TV show quality match. Dane powerbombed Maverick into Fandango for the finish in the one, two, three. And it turns out this was for the number one contendership for some reason. So Killian Dane and Drake Maverick are going to face and certainly lose the title, <laughs> or not lose the titles, but lose the match for the titles to MSK, obviously. I guess I'd give it like a C minus something like that. It wasn't a bad match, but it certainly wasn't good. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm always a fan of having number one contender matches in any situation. So I'm, it's a weird sure. spot to put the, uh, put the stipulation in there, but I was fine with it. Yeah. There wasn't much to this match. Um, this is my first time seeing Killing Dane and Drake Maverick. I heard about it and everything, but, uh, very much a, uh, a Jurassic express, but Killing is annoyed with him kind of vibe. I get Basically, yeah, yeah, they're not they're not really friends or it's a convenience more than anything. Uh, now, on night two, we did get a pretty cool moment. NXT showed NCAA heavyweight champion and future Olympian, soon to be future Olympian, I should say, uh, Gable Stevenson in the crowd with Stephanie McMahon and Cameron Seaman, who uh, is his name, who is the head of talent development for WWE. So there's no secret. And Stevenson <laughs> has not made it any secret that he's been ready to sign with WWE and presumably will once the Olympics are over. Uh, Triple H said in the post-show conference call, I just happened to see a note about it, that Stevenson is their guest all week for NXT and for WrestleMania, him and his father. I believe his brother is already signed. The Capital yeah. brothers, I think, are both already signed. Uh, Rick Steiner's son is signed. Parker Bordeaux is signed. There is a lot of beef in this NXT performance center and Gable Stevenson may actually be the cream of the crop. And certainly goal number one, I hope he wins gold for us in the Olympics. And goal number two is I hope just like Kurt Angle soon after that, he signs with WWE and it 
I think I don't think they're putting him on TV here if he's going to sign elsewhere or do UFC or something. So yeah, I, I, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, I don't think Gable Stevenson is going to end up in ECW and then a, 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 a mm-hmm. Sandman being crucified uh, changes <laughs> his mind or anything like that. Uh, right. But yeah, no, I mean he's been tweeting about wanting to join. WWE, it's 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 pretty clear that that's going to happen. He's got the Olympics to to deal with first. I mean, his name is Gable. I mean, he was born to be a professional wrestler. If you haven't seen the clip, he won the national championship a couple of weeks ago, and he does one of those like cartwheel backflips type of things. He's a crazy athletic dude. He 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 trained. Brock Lesnar went went over to Minnesota a couple of years ago, and there's a clip of him and, and Gable Stevenson training together like an actual amateur wrestling that was really really cool so obviously a uh, huge um, future for him and uh yeah they're, and, and nobody's making any sort of secret about this relationship too so I, I and i'm sure wwe is happy to do that knowing that he's heading to the olympics soon and, yeah. gonna, and these two sides are going to ride each other uh to that uh, to that notoriety being able to play off that for WWE will be absolutely huge. And yeah. if, you know, they can't sign him, obviously, until it's over. Um, but it's pretty clear that that is what is in their future. Uh, did you see the pre-shows? I'm not going to get into details about them necessarily, but I'm curious if you saw them because I did have a couple comments to make. Yes, they were <laughs> tremendous. We talked about this yeah. briefly Thursday, uh, whatever, night, Wednesday night on Twitter spaces. But th- it's exactly how WWE should do all of their pre-shows. It's a mix of panel type talking you have one match you have high you have some video packages but you also have uh interviews that yeah. are i don't know if you call it exclusive content or unique stuff stuff that you hadn't seen before Fresh. Samoa jo- yeah samoa joe yeah interviewing a couple of people um again i again i i don't watch a ton of nxc so i watched the pre-shows to kind of get caught up on things and right. it got me really excited for it it was Incredibly well done. I hope this is kind of a template WWE can take moving forward. Yeah. So, you know, on those pre-shows, and I'm not trying to single him out. I don't have dislike. I just want to be very clear. Sam Roberts is probably the only thing about that pre-show that I would have changed just because I want someone who's a little bit more of a straight man in a hosting role. And if they had Sam in the Arash Makarazi role or, or just someone who's providing additional analysis, I would have been totally fine with it. But as the host, I thought I didn't think Sam was in the right role, even though he certainly hosts his own podcast and it's very extremely popular. So I'm sure he's very good at that. Uh, so I just didn't like him in that role. But other than that, I really enjoyed this guy, Jimmy Smith immensely. Yeah. Uh, he's an MMA dude and he brought a lot of reality and expertise and real fight analysis of what is truly, you know, predetermined uh, entertainment. So I loved having him on there. And I think he is someone that they should bring back every single time. I also thought Mickey James was really good. She was good on commentary during the pre-show match. And I thought she gave pretty good analysis in the pre-show as well. But the part, and you mentioned it, that shined, totally shined. And it's no surprise we know this, Samoa Joe, the interviews with the talent. If you look at the disparity between Joe's reality-based interviews and Michael Cole's canned bullshit questions and really shitty, you know, pre-written responses from the wrestlers, it's night and day. And it's not that Cole can't do better. It's that they won't let him do better on the main roster. These pre-shows for NXT were just as good, you know, equivalent 
um, as the card and, and the the takeovers themselves. They felt real and authentic, like they were building to a real fight card instead of the glitz, glamour, and kind of comic book nature and catchphrases of WWE. They may actually combine to be the best pre-show, specific pre-show live immediately before a pay-per-view event that WWE has ever done. Now, I probably really need to like research that and make sure that's a legitimate statement because there's been some that have had great matches and things like that. But I was highly entertained by these pre-shows. It felt to me like I was getting a prelude to a huge boxing match or a huge UFC fight card, not a WWE pay-per-view. And I think everyone involved, particularly Triple H and whoever produced those, deserves a lot of credit. It felt like a real sports pre-show. That's how they work. They have a fresh content, fresh interviews, like an NFL on Fox Sunday type of show or, or a Super Bowl pre-show or an NBA or something. There, it's a mix of telling you the stories, catching you up on things, but also giving you new stuff as well. Uh, yep. Very, very well done. And then lastly, this is very minor, but um, Nita Strauss did the Star Spangled Banner to open night one on USA Network and Peacock. And I thought it was absolutely tremendous. She also did Pete Dunn's theme, which was pretty cool. I didn't care much for Poppy's song on night two, primarily because it was an original and not something like she was covering, which I think would have been better. Uh, but they also did an opening with like flashing lights and chain link being added to the screens. The whole thing, the way they opened these shows and the way they presented these matches with those plain black and white graphics on the big screens, it made that venue look exceedingly impressive. And for such a small performance center that was not built to be an arena for anything, let alone NXT to do a takeover, they really worked hard between that, the set, that big skull. Um, they enhanced some of the fan seating type of areas. They did everything they could to make this come across as pretty hardcore and legit and gritty. And I think they succeeded massively doing it. Yeah, I mean, it very much did not feel like a typical NXT. I mean, despite being in the same building. And you can't say that for the way WWE has handled Raw and SmackDown versus a pay-per-view. They've all kind of had the same setting. So huge shout out to the production folks at NXT who were able to turn the Capitol Wrestling Center into what felt like a completely different venue, really, I think, for a big show. And that was awesome. And lastly here, this is how we close all of our instant analysis. We talk about the pre and post-show polls. We already talked about the pre-show. It was 78% A, 14% B, 7% C. Now this, to be clear, was taken before night one. So then after night two, the total expectation grade, again, 78, 14, 7. Um, the, the total post-show poll, what people actually thought, how they decided to grade NXT TakeOver, Stand and Deliver, Chris. 76% said A, 23% said B, 1% said C, and 0% said D or F. So literally, no joke, no exaggeration, 99% of respondents said this was an A or B. To be specific, 98.9% of respondents said this was an A or B. That is I mean, it's not shocking because it was that, right? Like, but 
holy shit. I mean, I've never seen this much universal love for a show, especially considering that the poll was taken after night two, which was maybe closer to like a B plus show instead of night one, which was in between an A and A plus show. So I'm thrilled that it got good ratings and reviews because it really deserved it. Uh, Really what happened is the people who were in that C range went to B. And the A's basically stayed the same. You know, very few, 2% of people went from A to B, which is basically insignificant. So yeah, I thought it was great. And as we always do here, we give our post-show polls or our post-show grades. I'm sorry, I am getting loopy here as well. So Chris, two nights combined into one grade. What is your grade of NXT TakeOver Stand and Deliver? I give it a B plus. It kind of goes back to what I said at Oof. the opening. And that is, I think for me... NXT takeovers that don't have a full-on live crowd, um, they there's just there's just even for the WWE shows, dude, there's there's a ceiling. Part of it is because I don't watch NXT every week. Every week, I'm sure, um, but it was very enjoyable. Very very. There was nothing. There was zero stuff on the show that was bad. Everything was good to great, um, and I would give it a B plus. So, you know, I accept that. I think it's a little difficult for me, though, to go B plus when I give that to so many WWE pay-per-views and you do kind of need to put them in in similar context. What I'm looking at here is my average grades for the matches and then adding in the atmosphere and the kickoff shows, the pre-shows and the, the quality of that. I think after night one, I was thinking legitimately that by the end of night two, I could give it an A plus. I can't do that because some things did fall short and, and we talked about that. But I also don't think I can give it an A minus because there was a five-star match. There were two 4.75 star matches, uh, which are basically borderline A pluses and everything else, almost everything else was a B plus B or B minus. So that simply, I mean, you don't have to be a math major to know that averages out to an A and that's what this was for me so far. NXT TakeOver Stand and Deliver is the pay-per-view equivalent show of 2021. And the Silver King gives you, just like my first name, an A for NXT TakeOver Stand and Deliver. So so we would say night one was stand and night two was deliver. And we were it's probably the op- and honestly, it was probably the opposite. <laughs> night yeah, one I mean, delivered. It, it turned out that it was night one that delivered and, and yeah. night, two, night two kind of stood, stood up. Ground. Yeah. It stood yeah, totally. where, it stood exactly where we wanted to go. So no, that that was fun. It actually we talked about it a little bit the other day, but so you can't so you can pause and rewind Peacock on iOS. I, uh, and that's I was, what I did. Yeah, yeah, I was able to do it on my iPad today because I had to run out the door for something I took it with me. Um so it's good to know ahead of WrestleMania that that to, if it's on your Roku or your com- your computer, you can't. But if you have it on an iPhone or an iPad, you can still rewind and scroll back and stuff like that. It's very weird that it's only for a certain setup. Peacock really needs to get on that. That was one of the best features of WWE Network. But this being our first pay-per-view on Peacock, um, that was helpful. But I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it was frustrating. My brother was frustrating for him to not be able to, to go back and see something he didn't watch. For sure. Yeah. And it is is a good note for people ahead of WrestleMania. I mean, I don't know how the hell I'm going to watch on Saturday and Sunday, but I'm going to figure out a way and we are going to do this damn podcast. A reminder, you know, first of all, I thank you all for listening to this instant analysis and please excuse 
kind of the tone of my voice here. I'm just trying to be very quiet and respectful because I am in a hotel and it is super late right now as I'm finishing this up. But we will be back, just a reminder, uh, on Friday with a go-home show for WrestleMania 37. Last thoughts, final opportunities to provide some perspective. Uh, we also have a WrestleMania 37 Ultimate Preview that's literally sitting in our archives right now waiting for you to listen to it. So make sure you do. And then we will be back Sunday night after WrestleMania night two is off the air with instant analysis of WrestleMania 37. And depending on my schedule, depending how tired I am, there is a chance that after WrestleMania night one, that Chris Vanini and I will be on Twitter spaces doing a live audio quick reaction, I guess is what we can call it. 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes thoughts, not really match analysis. We will always save that for the instant analysis. The way to get that is to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You will need the iOS or Android app, the official Twitter app, and you should be able to join us if you have those. Again, don't know that we're going to do it, but we might. Either way, though, you should follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You should also head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review. Every single review counts, and I hope that you guys can do that for us, given how much effort we're putting in this week. So that's it. It's been a long night. Silver King really, really needs to get to bed. So I'm going to leave you. First of all, thank you to Vintage Chris Vanini, but I'm going to leave you all with three final words. Bye for now.